cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, June 5th, 2012. Yeah, I took an unannounced day off yesterday. I uh, spent the weekend with my daughter, my son-in-law, and my grandson. Great time. Pictures are on Facebook and Twitter if you want to see them. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, we're officially into the summer season, and things usually slow down <laughs> this time of year for the seeker-driven guys. I mean, normally I, it's you know I'm I'm scraping a little bit during the summer to try to piece together uh, programs that have any kind of coherent theme to them. Um, so far, there hasn't been a slump. There, <laughs> I'm thinking that maybe the heresy hurricane season has run late this year. I'm I'm literally looking at my. Uh, my Instapaper account and going, how on earth am I going to get to all of this? Now, while I was uh, traveling uh, to and from my uh, daughter's home, she lives out in Virginia. Anyway, while we were, uh, we drove there, while we were driving there, I was listening to, uh, you know, to the circle maker, uh, Mark Batterson's book and uh, making mental notes. Cause I want to circle back. <laughs> Notice the pun. I want to circle back. And what I want to do is, uh, is take different pieces from the book and provide a little bit more of an in-depth critique and uh, put it out there as uh, something that's more of a standalone in-depth resource because um, uh, the the critiques that I've offered so far have been based upon things he's said in sermons or speeches regarding it, and um, as I'm going through the book, I'm thinking, yeah, there's there's some stuff we've got to we've got to go back and circle through. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I, I'm not trying to make circular jokes. It's just they seem to be coming anyway. So that, that's one of the things I'm going to be doing. But uh, that's that's like tip of the iceberg kind of stuff here. I I just I cannot believe the stories that are out there that uh, need to be covered. And uh, I want to let you know kind of advance today that I will be discussing 
ever so briefly, just as a result of uh, a news story in the Christian Post regarding the uh, the document that's put out there in the S. There is a fight going on in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, didn't they didn't they vote to change their name to like the General Baptists or something like that? You know, when I heard that they were changing their name, and I heard what they were changing it to, I thought, yeah, it sounds like they're going to change their name to the Vanilla Baptists. You know, some something bland, boring, blase. Anyway. But uh, there's a fight going on in the uh, in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, and I, I want everyone to know that uh, they're not alone in this. They really are not alone. And what I mean by that is this: is that I'm a confessional Lutheran, and I'm a member uh, of the uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And uh, got to tell you, there's a fight going on in the Missouri Synod too. It's it it's um, not burbled burbled up to the point where. Uh, it's going to get any kind of media coverage, but there's a fight. There really, really is a fight going on. And uh, the battle lines uh, really appear to be drawn uh, theologically over post-modernity and, uh, and confessional Lutheranism and post-modernity as it's expressing itself in the seeker-driven movement and other things going on. So I'm hoping to, uh, that I might end up having to kind of cover some of that in the, in the weeks ahead, uh, you know, sooner rather than later, but... Um, I'm just looking at all this. How am I going to get to everything? So let's talk about what we have on deck for today and what I have for you. Um, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, we're going to start off with um a um kind of a shot across Perry Noble's bow. Um, what we're going to be doing is listening to a brief snippet from Perry Noble, uh, from his um lecture speech pep talk that he gave at Catalyst in 2010. And you're thinking, 2010? Yeah, it really, it wasn't that long ago. Um, so it, it, Perry Noble, who is a pastor to pastors, who, I mean, he's so important that the Christian Post has to write a story, letting everybody know that he's on a sabbatical for two months. And so I'm going to take a little bit of time and make a suggestion based upon um, this uh, three-minute-long video that we're going to be listening to as to wh- how... Perry Noble can best spend uh, his sabbatical. I, I really don't think he should go to the Bahamas. I don't think he should, you know, head to some tropical region, crack open a Corona and watch the the tide come in. You know, over you know cl- clear crystal blue waters. Or I don't think he should do anything like that. Um, I, in fact, I have a very specific thing that I think would be very beneficial to him, and uh, if he would like me to provide him. Uh, with some uh, reading material, I I will offer to do that. But uh, so we're gonna take a look at that. Um, y'all, you know the uh, the um, Marty Python slash Max Holiday sketch that references the Midget Cannon expansion pack. You're thinking, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I gotta tell you. I really am beginning to think that maybe what we need to do is retire all satire here at uh, at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio because what we put out there as humor, as satire, to make a point, somehow ends up becoming something that gets done in the church. Now, technically, this wasn't done in the church, but I'm going to be previewing uh, an exhibit that we're going to be putting in the Museum of Idolatry tomorrow uh, where a guy who is the human cannonball, he's, he, he calls himself the human cannonball, was shot from a cannon at a pastoral leadership conference. No kidding. And I, I'm, I'm thinking it was an audition, you know, because I can just see that in the crowd there was a whole bunch of pastors 
oohing and aahing about this guy being shot from a cannon, wondering, oh, man, can we get that guy in our church to do that? So, <laughs> yeah, that's so that's going to be t- tomorrow's exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry. Um, I've got a, a story from pastors.com. So it's kind of a Rick Warren uh, update, but it's not technically a Rick, Rick Warren. I'm gonna say that say that ten times fast. Rick Warren. Rick Warren. You can't say it fast. Anyway, I've got a Rick Warren update. Um, uh, only by by virtue of the fact that this appeared at pastors.com, which is his website. And the name of the uh, article is Why Knowledge is a Thing of the Past. <laughs> and I'm not going to tip my hand. You know, in fact, I'm I'm arguing with myself. Do I play the Rick Warren update music or the emergent orchestra update? Because this is a postmodern argument. And uh, this is true. This is the kind of stuff that I was hearing from Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Padgett back in you know 2004, 2005. And now it's resurfaced at the pastors.com website under somebody else's name, but you know, the, missing the emergent uh, moniker, but the same argument nonetheless. Um, so like, and then, like I said, we're going to talk ever so briefly about the Southern Baptist divided over Calvinism. And I want everybody to know that, um, that James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries, he's recently covered this document and did just a, a stellar job. If you want to hear a good, well-reasoned, Calvinistic biblical argument against that particular document that we'll be talking about, then I, you know, I leave it to uh, James White, who uh, he just did a stellar job. Uh, go to aomin.org, uh, yeah, aomin.org, and uh, listen to uh, the job that he did on that. And then uh, for the balance of the, of the program, the balance of hour number one, we're going to be uh, listening to part of a video interview that Ed Stetzer of Lifeway, he's part of the SBC, uh, did with uh, Dr. Tal Davis regarding Mormonism. And I've I've named the segment Ed Stetzer's Unhelpful Discussion of Mormons with Tal Davis. You'll see what I mean uh, regarding unhelpful. And then for our number two, um, we're, uh, we, we got a sermon review. Uh, the, I don't even... It, here's the deal. We just coined the term Maslow-ation from Maslow's hierarchy of needs and oration. Just stick them together. Maslow, Maslow-ation. We just coined that term, and this doesn't even fit that. Um, this is fr- the name of the. I want to say stand-up comedy routine. This is a sermon that, as far as I can tell, really should have been done at open mic night at the uh, the local uh, you know comedy club. But um, the name of it is Unleash Your Potential. The, the, the guy presenting it, his name is Eric Lawson. Now, he is the, the head pastor of Element Church, which I think is in the St. Louis, Missouri area. But he was preaching this, not preaching. He delivered this stand-up comedy routine that was masquerading as a sermon, maybe masquerading as a masquerade at Milestone Church in Keller, Texas. Man, is that complicated. Anyway, that's what we're going to be doing in hour number two. I, I, I'm really thinking about, you know, getting my rim shot uh, ready for this particular, you know, hang on. Yeah, let's get that a little louder. A little louder. There you go. Yeah, I'm thinking about having that ready for this. It's, it's a sermon. I don't know what to call it. But uh, anyway, so we've got a lot of stuff on deck, much ground to cover, and I'm glad to be back. And uh, But I got to tell you. <laughs> my grandson's cute 
That's a, I'm just saying, okay, he's cute, and uh, we, we hit it off really well. I, I understand he's, like, only a month and, like, a week or so old, but uh, we hit it off. And, you know, my daughter uh, was actually kind of surprised at how well he took to me uh, due to the fact that he doesn't take to everybody. And uh, I, I, she she thinks that it has something to do with the fact that he may already know my voice because my daughter and her son, and her husband listen to my program. I'm off topic. Anyway, so with that, we are going to dive into the program proper. Here we go. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me. Everywhere, for it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flower. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flower. First, I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a scene. Yeah, there we go. All right, so back in 2010, um, uh, Perry Noble appeared at the Catalyst East Convention in Atlanta, Georgia. And got to tell you, you know, he tried to make a biblical point and, well, didn't quite pull it off. Um, in fact, he, he actually really fell down on his face regarding his attempt at trying to make a biblical point there, having something to do with the story of Elijah being fed um, you know, by God, you know, by the ravens and stuff like that. Anyway, I, I'm not going to tell you the biblical story quite yet. We're going to, we, I, in fact, I'm really thinking I need to spend just a smidge of time in the biblical text to kind of demonstrate that this is an adventure in missing the point, which leads to the, me to ask the question, why is it that Perry Noble is a leader to leaders, a pastor to pastors? It doesn't make any sense because, um, Pastors are ones who are supposed to, well, study, so show themselves approve as workmen who need not blush with embarrassment, rightly handling, rightly cutting or dividing the word of truth, right? This is what, you know, what's written in Scripture. Must be able to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, rebuke those who contradict it. Well, see if this is um, a right handling, a right cutting, a rightly handling uh, the word of truth, or if this is just... Well, mm, poppycock. Here we go. Most of us in this room understand 1 Kings 18 because we've preached about it or we've taught about it in children's church or whatever. Yeah, 1 Kings 18, I think, would be the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel. Now, re remember, this is a catalyst. This is one of the uber-premier, seeker-driven leadership conferences. This is where, uh, well, Perry Noble, a leader of leaders, a fuhrer of fuhrers, if you would, is out there. He's being held up as like, this is a go-to guy. You need to listen to him, okay? Because he is important. and He's so important that he, well, he teaches other pastors. 
we continue. See, here's what I believe with all my heart. I don't believe God brought Elijah to the brook to punish him. I think he brought Elijah to the brook to prepare him for greater things that were going to eventually blow his mind. Mm. Okay. It's not looking good here, folks. It's really not looking good. Okay, so God didn't bring Elijah to the brook in order to punish Elijah. Well, I mean, maybe we should read the story and um, see if there's anything in there that would indicate that God could have potentially been punishing Elijah. The reason I say that is is because, I mean, as we're reading the story, I mean, don't you think that might come up as like an option as, as to how to understand this text, that God could potentially be, well, punishing Elijah. Let's flip on over to First uh, Kings chapter 17. First Kings chapter 17. Let's do a little bit of reading and see what's going on here. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe, or Tishbe in the uh, in Gilead said to Ahab. Now Ahab is a bad guy. Ahab is married to um, Jezebel, Jezebel, um, and he worships. They the, the two of them worship Baal, Asherah. I mean, they are flat out just wicked, evil idolaters. Okay, so as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. This is Elijah talking to. Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel is before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, so there's not going to be any rain until Elijah says there's going to be rain. Why? Because God told Elijah to tell Ahab that. Okay, now this is kind of a big deal. And the reason why is because, well... Yahweh here is flexing some muscle. He's in a showdown. Think of this as like, well, an ultimate fighter match to the death between Yahweh and Baal, except for Baal doesn't exist. Okay, And see, that's the point, because Baal is supposed to be the Lord of the, the God who brings the rain. Okay, that's the area he controls. He controls the heavens, the sky, the, you know, the rain, the clouds and all that kind of stuff. And so at this point, Elijah's basically saying to Ahab, here's the deal. Baal is powerless. I'm going to prove it to you because I stand before Yahweh. Okay, the one true God. And he told me to tell you. It ain't going to rain until I say it's going to rain. It's not only that, that Yahweh is flexing his muscles here, but he's flexing his muscles through the means or the instrument, Elijah, a man, a mere mortal. Okay. So the word of the Lord came to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cher, uh, Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook. I have commanded the ravens to feed you. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, okay, which belongs to Sidon there, uh, and dwell there. Okay, well, okay, so as I'm reading this story... um. There's no indication here that God would have been punishing 
Elijah. Elijah probably could have put two and two together and figured out, okay, so the reason why the brook dried up is because I am the one who gets to say when the rain comes and I haven't said for there to be rain, so there's no rain. So that would mean that the brook would dry up. No indication in the text whatsoever that would make you think, hmm, okay, well, the reason why this is happening potentially is because, well, God's punishing Elijah. So what's, what is um, Perry Noble doing here? That's the question. What's he doing with this text? Well, in order to answer that, let me back the audio up just a few seconds and listen to what he's doing here. I think he brought Elijah to the brook to prepare him for greater things that were going to eventually blow his mind. Mm. Well, it was already a miracle that it wasn't raining. So he's, you know what he's doing. He's allegorizing this text. You see here, apparently, First uh, Kings chapter 17, you know, verses 1 through 7, that, you know, he's there at the brook, uh, Cherith, and, uh, you know, and the ravens are feeding, and there's no water and stuff like that. You know, you can imagine how difficult that would have been, you know. It would have been hot. It would have been dusty. He would have been hungry. He would have been thirsty. You see, all that is is an, it, it's an, alleg- he's alleg- well, he's allegorizing this text, you know, to basically say, hey, you know, is your life dry and dusty? Or do you feel like you're not dehydrated? What's your brook, Cherry? You know, you know, what's the brook in your life? I mean, if if you've got that, don't worry. Some God's setting you up to blow your mind. Is that you think that's a sound reading of these texts? Like not even close. Because, because this is First Kings seventeen, and in First Kings seventeen we got Elijah, and he's by a brook, and he's about to become dehydrated, and he's about to die in the desert, and he got there because he's following Jesus. But in First Kings eighteen, well, we know that story, right? Remember, he goes on top of Mount Carmel, or Caramel, however you say that. It's Carmel because we're in the south. He goes on top of Mount Carmel, remember that? And he faced down the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asher, and they they did the fire thing, and he did his fire thing, and fire fell down, and then a big, huge fireworks display, and then they killed all the prophets, and then he goes off and he prays for rain, something that the land hadn't seen in three years, and all of a sudden it's... Yeah, the reason why I hadn't seen it for three years is because God told him to tell Ahab, listen, it ain't raining until I say it's raining, and he didn't say for it to rain for three years. That's the point starts raining on the land and Israel experienced revival. Israel experienced a move of God that they had never experienced in their history until that time. They saw things they had never seen and it was all done through a man who a chapter before had been by a dried up brook. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, this is so bad. I mean... Somebody, I mean, you you, you know that, uh, you know, what, what's that uh, word game? Wheel of Fortune, you know, that's <laughs> memory losing here. You know how you can buy a vowel? Somebody buy this guy a hermeneutical clue. Uh, he, uh. So if you're here today at Catalyst and the brook is dry, I, I believe God sent me here, with, I believe this with all my heart to tell you, he's not punishing you. Is, is your brook dry? So who's he talking to? Seeker-driven leaders, guys who are risking everything to 
plant a seeker-driven church. I mean, they may have mortgaged their house. They may not be, you know, making a salary, you know, but just so they're experiencing the dry brook (laughs) portion of their ministry, right? This is a pep talk. Stick with it. We need more seeker-driven churches out there. Don't give up. We know it's uh, it's hard for you, and we understand that almost 70% of you guys are going to fail within the first five years, but stick with it. Stick with it. Don't give up. Never surrender. He's preparing you. He's preparing you for greater things than you could ever imagine. One chapter later, Elijah is on top of the mountain calling fire down from heaven. You're by your brook, but God's got greater plans for you than you could ever imagine. Oh, man. This is such a mis- miserable mishandling of the text. It's, this is a form of narcissism, narcissistic eisegesis. Good night. You're by your brook. Don't worry. Yeah, and the circle maker, Batterson says, you know, he points out the fact that the people of Israel circled Jericho seven times. He asked then, what's your Jericho? What do you need to circle? This is not how the Bible is supposed to be read. This is a complete mishandling and mangling of God's word. Don't give up when you're by the brook. Yeah, whatever you do, don't give up when you're by the brook. So you got some poor guy going, okay, I'm in the brook portion of my ministry. I'm waiting for the Mount Carmel experience. And huh, I'm sorry, but um, the the story of Elijah in Elijah and First Kings 17 and 18 ain't about your quote ministry or any dry brook seasons in your life or anything like that. That's not what this is about. So here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. God had to teach Elijah something by the brook. Really? And what what did he have to teach him? Because Elijah was by the brook because God told him to say, no rain until you say so. And he said, okay, no rain until I say so. And he didn't say rain yet. What do you think God was teaching him? He wasn't by the brook because he was experiencing a slump in his ministry. It wasn't like life had beat him up and he was down on he was down and out and you know and on the ropes and all he had to do was somehow reach out in faith and then he would have the Mount Carmel experience. That's not what that passage is about. God had to teach Elijah something and his leaders today I think he has to teach us this lesson as well. Elijah thought that brook was his supply. <laughs> Really, how can that be when God is the one who was feeding him every day via the ravens? Let's go back to the biblical text here. First Kings seventeen five. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is in the east of Jordan. Mm-hmm. See, see, here we go. Depart, see, well, let me back it up. Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is the in, is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook. I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Right? Verse 6. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Hmm. Um. <laughs> I don't see anything in the text that would lead me to believe that Elijah, for even the remotest moment, would have thought, you know, this brook is my supply rather than God. The text doesn't say that. 
I mean, like, not even close. I mean, how can you come up with such a ridiculous conclusion when he's getting his meat every day from birds? And God was like, I brought you by the brook to teach you, Elijah, that you don't depend on brooks. And oh, this is so bad. This is just awful. You don't depend on big donors and you don't depend on all of them. You learn how to depend on me because even. But he was depending on him. That's what the text says. Though the brook is dry, Elijah, I am never dry. I am a grave robbing, water walking God who reigns over every situation you will ever face, Elijah. You don't give up when the brook is dry. When you when you're by the brook, you know what this is. This is like Joe Osteen with a "you suck" attitude. I mean, that, that's sorry, but that's how Perry Noble speaks. And you're about to give up. Actually, you need to hold your head up because I'm about to blow your mind. Because I always come through when when the, when it's the darkest times. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so here's what I'm suggesting. Okay, all of that was to make this point. Perry Noble right now is on the two month disabled list. He's been taken off of the seeker driven roster and he's on two week, two, sorry, two month, two month disabled list, two months. He's on the uh, sabbatical. And um, if he would like, he has to contact me to let me know if he wants it, though. Um, I will be happy to send him my copy of Raymond Serberg's book, The Principles of Biblical Interpretation, which is a standard text that is used at the Fort Wayne Seminary in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And it's, you know, it's just a mere 200 pages long, and it walks you through the basics of biblical hermeneutics. It's a text that I have had for years, and I still reference and go back to from time to time when I'm working on biblical texts. If uh, Perry would like me to send him my copy, I will be happy to part with it, and he can have it, but he's got to let me know, because I think that's what he needs to do, since I don't think it's feasible for him during the summer months to enroll in a basic a remedial hermeneutics class, um, I'm willing to uh, at least supply him with a book that will uh, aid him in that endeavor. I think he should spend the next two months really going back and re and well, I don't know if it's relearning, learning the uh, the the art of how to rightly handle God's word, so that when he preaches, he doesn't make really bad bad mistakes and twist the Bible like he just did there. Anyway. Now, real quick, uh, this is a preview, a preview of tomorrow's, um, well, exhibit that we're putting in the Museum of Idolatry. You can find this at a littleleven.com, a littleleven.com. And you're hearing the audio from a video from the 2010 Catalyst Conference of David the Bullet Smith Jr. being shot out of a 35 foot cannon at a pastoral leadership conference. No joke. Here, listen in. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. And there it goes flying across the arena. Yeah! Yeah! Yeah, give him a big hand. Yeah, now, that's just a preview. The whole video will be up tomorrow at a little11.com. And... Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that David, the Bullet Smith Jr., was actually, well, since he was in an audience full of seeker-driven pastors who are all about entertainment, 
I think that was an addition, you know. So the, the there's I know there's seeker driven pastors out there who are going, man, is my church big enough in order to put the cannon in and you fire David the Bullet Smith out of it, you know, for like the grand finale of some major sermonic theme that I want to give. Yeah, I'm just I'm just saying. So we're one step away at this point from having an actual human being, although David. The bullet isn't a midget. We're, we're one step removed now at this point from having a, well, a human cannonball being shot at a church. Stay tuned. I'm not sure how long it's going to take for David the Bullet Smith Jr. to be shot out of a cannon at your, at a local seeker driven congregation. But with a, with an audition like that, you can tell it's just a matter of time. All right, we are up on our first break, and if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one. And I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once. Not even in the footnotes. No, no. You just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon. Beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. 
Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package, sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. We're back.
Uh, warning, anyone who says, well, what's your Drybrook, or what's your Jericho, or what's your Goliath? If they claim to be a pastor, they don't know what they're talking about. Don't listen to them. They're twisting God's word. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And uh, if you'd like to support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute just a mere $6.95 every month. Not a lot of money to you, but it's a big thing for us because the more people that subscribe and join our crew, that e- that levels out our giving month after month after month and makes it uh, easier for us to budget our, our expenses. Although, we're in the dreaded summer months and things kind of slow down for us during the summer months. And so we're in the middle of leg one of this year's bake sale. And uh, the the product that we're making available was made by my mother-in-law. No kidding. No joke. My mother-in-law, she beaded, B-E-A-D-E-D, beaded a really nice bracelet, piratey kind of theme and colors with the Pirate Christian Radio Cairo logo as in sterling silver as a charm on there. It's it's quite stunning, and the people who've received theirs already saying they're lo- they're they're loving it. So the way you, if you'd like to get yours to help support us uh, through the summer months, go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale, and then uh, get your bracelet today. Uh, there, there's a limited supply, and uh, once they're gone, they're gone. So. Just want to let you all know that. Okay, now I'm looking at my time here and going, did I really run that long? Yeah, I really ran that long. So what? <laughs> looking at my stories here, um, I'm going to come back. I, tomorrow I'll do the Why Knowledge is a Thing of the Past uh, from the Pastors.com website, and I'll, I'll mention and talk about the Southern Baptist divided over Calvinism. I will discuss that on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And what we're going to do for the balance of this hour is we're going to uh, take a listen to what I've entitled Ed Stetzer's Unhelpful Discussion of Mormons with Dr. Tal Davis. So to lead into that segment, we've got to play this. You cannot just believe partway. You have to believe in it all. The problem was doubting the Lord's will instead of standing tall. I can't allow myself to have any doubt. It's time to set my worries free. Time to show the world what Elder Price is about And share the power inside of me I believe that God has a plan for all of us I believe that plan involves me getting my own planet And I believe that the current president of the church, Thomas Monson, speaks directly to God I am a Mormon from the Broadway musical, The Book of Mormon. Um, Yeah, I believe that God has a plan for me and involves me having my own planet. Anyway, Ed Stetzer, uh, you know, he works for Lifeway uh, Publishing, and uh, he's got this 
thing that he does on his uh, blog now. It's kind of a video blog version of his blog called The Exchange with Ed Stetzer. And he recently had a conversation with Dr. Tal Davis regarding Mormonism and basically arguing that it's unhelpful. It's unhelpful to classify Mormonism or discuss them or talk about them as if they're a cult. And so what I thought I would do here is play for you the audio of his, a portion of the audio of his conversation with uh, Dr. Tal Davis so that you can hear for yourself, you know, basically how Ed was arguing and kind of chime in accordingly because I found his attempt at being helpful regarding the Mormon topic to be, well, extremely unhelpful. Uh, here, listen in. Thank you. Good to see you Appreciate again. It. We used yes. to work together. That's right. And, uh, and so now we're back together and right. we get to have a little conversation about Mormonism. We're, we're kind of at a Mormon moment. We're, That's right. Sure. Um, yeah, we're at a Mormon moment because of Mitt Romney. People are talk- I've seen more people talk about Mormonism in the last six months than in the entirety of my life before now. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm guessing you, having written and spoken on this for a couple of decades, mm-hmm. have been much more engaged in this conversation. Right. But I think in a sense we need to cut- catch up uh, mm-hmm. church leaders and mm-hmm. pastors on this Mormon mm-hmm. question. So, and that's the point. So who's Ed Stetzer's audience? Well, church leaders and pastors. So this is supposed to be information that's helpful. And Ed Stetzer, well, he's very well known in the seeker-driven movement going to be so, asked because uh, right you know on news stations they're asking prominent pastors who say oh mormonism is christianity absolutely. and then other prominent pastors who say no it's not christianity mm-hmm, i think mm-hmm. uh, rick warren gave a helpful answer mm-hmm, when he talked mm-hmm. some about well no there's fundamentally different right. different belief systems and, mm-hmm. and 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 so so let's talk some about that right. and get a feel sure. for this issue because um, it seems that mormons and evangelical christians seem to have a lot in common which I think is one of the reasons Absolutely. there's been this natural connection with a lot of evangelicals mm-hmm. and, uh, and and maybe some of their Mormon neighbors mm-hmm. or even Mormon mm-hmm. leaders. Talk, talk us a little bit about that. Well, I, you- a lot in, so we're going to start with our common ground with Mormons. Listen to this. You're right about that. Uh, when you look at our practices and behavior, uh, evangelicals and Mormons... Now, this is Dr. Tal Davis. ...do have a, a great deal in common. Uh, I mean, you just look at the... When you look at behavior, we have a lot in common. I would even argue that that's not really good common ground. Why? Why is a Mormon good? Why is a Mormon trying to be obedient? Answer, for very, very selfish reasons. Oh, if I'm obedient, then I can become a god. So they're trying to be on their very, very bestest behavior so that they can become a god. Because you can't become a god unless you're obedient. So ultimately... The, all of their attempts at morality are motivated by a very immoral reason. It's a very selfish reason, so that they can become gods. Sort of the board, you, you'd see that um, they have very conserv- mostly very conservative social mores, social customs. Uh, they both have a very strong emphasis on family ties, mm-hmm. family life. Uh, there's also sort of a tendency toward conservative uh, views politically, although not always. Well, you mm-hmm. mentioned Harry Reid, right, right, so, sure. so it's not always the case. But overwhelmingly, the numbers would show that evangelical, uh, particularly white evangelical Protestants, tend to be much more conservative politically, yeah. just like Mormons would That's be. That's exactly well. right. right. Uh, also, in terms of pro-life issues, uh, Mormon. Well, there you go. They're, they're politically conservative. Yay. 
Americans tend to be very pro-life, mm-hmm. and we would agree with them on that. They tend to be patriotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they live wholesome lifestyles. They encourage honesty and also moral purity. They put an emphasis on uh, healthy, moral, and sexual relations. So, so yeah, we're... we're- Have you <laughs> watched any episodes of Sister Wives? Um, <laughs> sexual purity. Right, yeah. As long as you're faithful within your polygamy. I have a lot in common with them. And yet you are so small-minded and so... Now here's the setup. So, okay, now, okay, so Tal Davis is small-minded. Now notice this is not a statement, this is a question. Narrow that you would not say, Tal, that Mormons are are Christians. Well, well, talk to me about that. Well, uh, now, how'd you like that setup? I want to help yeah, you out really. with that. But but that's but that's often how the world perceives it. Yeah. Like, well, who are these people? This is just mm-hmm. these are denominations like Methodists mm-hmm. and Lutherans and Baptists, mm-hmm. Pentecostals and Mormons. Why is that not the case? Well, like I said, you, if you look at the behavioral patterns, yes, we have a lot in common. But to really answer the question about whether Mormonism is a Christian system, you really have to go a little deeper. You have to look at the doctrine. You have to look at the theology of Mormonism. Yes, and this is a good answer here. So listen in. And I would go so far as to say that when you look at the differences or look at the, the compare side by side what Mormons believe about God and Christ and those key issues, uh, we have a very drastic differences, very radical concepts of those things. Uh, let me give me an example. Um, when we look at the, the concept of God, now as, as evangelical... This is where I'm starting to uh, get uh, just a little bit, um, well, aggravated. When we look at the concept of God, we're going to talk about God in the abstract here? And, and so this is their concept, about, this is their theology. This is the God they believe is there and they worship. And either that God exists like Baal or Yahweh or he doesn't. You get it? So uh, already this is where there's some slippage in the way the things are discussed. And I'll point it out in other places as I'm playing this out that this is not good. Okay? Their concept about God. No, 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 no. The God they, they worship. Okay? Let's just make it clear. They believe in this God, and here's the details about this God. This is the God they believe in and worship and expect good things from, namely to become gods. And as Christians in the, in the general sense, we believe that God is the infinite, eternal creator of the entire universe, that he made everything, that he has always existed, he's uh, omniscient, uh, omnipotent, all those words and, that we and, use. And you said, we say evangelicals, we would believe that, but pretty much... So, and- see, Again, here's here's the problem. I know this might seem like I'm splitting theological hairs. Work with me here. This is not a matter of what we believe. This is a matter of what God has revealed, okay? When we start putting it down to the personal perception level, we start talking in post most postmodern ways of talking and we actually are assuming postmodernity, okay? I know it sounds kind of weird, but work with me here. This is not a matter about what I believe or you believe or what Mormons believe. Ultimately, that's not about, that's really not the the issue. The issue is what has God revealed about himself? Who is he? What is he like? What are his attributes? What's his character? What has he accomplished? What has he done? What does he expect us to do? Okay, so when we say, we talk this way, in in this context, I think we have to take a f- much 
firmer, more solid stance. And basically, almost Elijah on Mount Carmel style. And what here's the deal. Either Baal is God and you worship him, or Yahweh is God and you worship him. Either the God of the scriptures, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity is God, Yahweh, and you worship him, or Elohim, Heavenly Father, and the multitude of God's uh, in and around planet Kolob is God and you are to worship him. I think that's the context we've got to go with here, but it, it, we're, everything's being discussed in this weird abstraction kind of way that's just, well, it's grating on me. Anyone who would put the name there, I mean, Protestant, you talk about Catholic, Orthodox, Orthodox. I mean, yes. this is, this, anyone uh-huh. who would name themselves any variant mm-hmm. of this dream mm-hmm. would say that's the case. Yeah, that's- yeah, and you know why, Ed? It's because that's what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. There's a reason why all of the different denominations in the visible church believe all this in common. That's what we understand about God. However, when you understand carefully the Mormon teaching on God, you'll see that it's a very different concept. No, no, no. It's a different God. It's not a different concept. It's a different God. Uh, in Mormonism, God is, is literally a human being. Right. He is a man who lives in another world mm-hmm. with his wife. Right. And that he and his wife are procreating children who later become us, his earthly children. And uh, God is a, a human being. He was at one time a, a uh, a person lived on another world. Much now, His description here of the Mormon teaching about the God they believe in is true. Like this one, uh, but because of his obedience and because of uh, his following the, his God. Right, because of his obedience and him following his God, he became a God. That's the point. That's why I said I don't even give them credit for their morality because the reason why they're doing it is so that they can become gods. He was able to progress and to become what they call exalted. He was raised to godhood, he and his wife. And therefore, he created this world and populated this world, and now he is sort of the god of this world. Uh, but he- No, sort of, no, that, according to their teaching, that's what they claim, the, that he is the god of this world. He is a physical being. He uh, is limited by time and space. Yep. Uh, he did not create the universe. The universe is eternal. And so uh, in, just at that very point, we under, and, he's not, and it's not a triune God. They believe that, the, that God is the heavenly father, but Jesus is a second God. Right. Jesus was the firstborn right. son of the heavenly father in that preexistent world. And then the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost is actually a third God. And actually there are many other gods that in, in the Mormon uh, idea. But uh, so in the Mormon idea. Just at that very basic point, we would have to say that the theology between um, what historic Christianity has maintained and what Mormonism as a system believes are very, very different. No, it's not. the, The theology that historic Christianity has maintained, that's not the dividing point. The dividing point is what God has revealed about himself in his word and in the incarn in the incarnation itself, it Jesus Christ. That that's that's where the divergence is. It's not with historic Christianity. It's with what Scripture says. It's what what God has revealed. That is the authority, not the church. Huge difference. Huge difference. And and I think for some people they're going to hear that. And and maybe you're out there. You think, well, that's just they they believe weird stuff. Well, I'm not. I'm not so much offended by the by the weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be. You should be offended by the weird stuff, because they are using. All Christian words, Jesus, 
Elohim, God the Father, Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, cross. They're using all of our language and mean something completely different. You should be offended by that. Not only are the the problem is, is that they're worshiping a different God and they've hijacked biblical language to do it. Because I think that that's what they're using the Bible as camouflage. It's an odd idea that God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but God the Son was born Jesus the Christ in the backwoods of the Roman Empire in a place called Bethlehem, lived a sinless life, died on the sins uh, on the cross for sins of men and women. God raised him from the dead on the third day, and he's going to come back riding a horse um, and, and, you know, a white horse. And, and I mean, that's that's... What we believe yeah. is strange. Yeah. But the, so, so the strangeness doesn't concern me as much other than the fact that this, well, it does because I, I think it's fundamentally wrong, but uh, the strangeness concerns me less than the fact that it is a totally different perception Absolutely. of who God is. No, it's a different God. It's not a perception. It is a different God by definition. Well, well, that's their perception I have my perception of God. You have your perception. You know, yeah. That kind of misses the whole point. Yeah. One of the questions that came in from the chat room is, and it's a good question. It says, as I understand it, the the questioner said, Smith, Joseph Smith, Mm -hmm. claimed that the Christian church was apostate. Mm -hmm. Yep, he did. Why would they now want to be considered part of us? Because one of the things that I I wrote about, and when I wrote a little bit on this, was that now Mormons want to be seen as a, Another denomination. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're Methodists, Lutherans, mm-hmm. Mormons, and, mm-hmm. and Baptists, and Pentecostals. Um, well, but, but historically, I, that's not the case. Well, let's, let's talk, look at the history a little yeah. bit. Of course, uh, Mormonism started with Joseph Smith, Jr., back in the early 1800s. And when Joseph Smith was New, a young... In New York. Correct. In New York. I'm a New Yorker, so I'm liking the oh, connection. okay. So. Yeah, near Palmyra. Yes, uh, as a young man, Joseph was a part of a revival in his community. And one of the questions that he had was, which is the true church? Which church should he join? And so, according to his story, he went and prayed out in the woods one day. And while he was out praying, God the Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him. And they told Joseph Smith that he should join none of the churches. And that all of the churches were, uh, as you put it, as it, the question was, apostate. Right. That they was were his wrong. Word. That was his term. That's God. Right, right. And that uh, he should have nothing to do with any of them, but that God was going to use him, Joseph Smith, to, re- in essence, reinstate the true, the true Christianity. Right. And so early on, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you, do you not think that that would be like a bone of contention, like a major rub? Really, every denomination is apostate. No one's got the truth. No one worships God correctly. And this, by the way, the source of this information is not, according to Joseph Smith, was God himself. It's established themselves as the one true church on earth. They are the only ones that have the certain priesthoods that they believe in. And, mm-hmm. and of course, their presidents have been down a line since Joseph Smith. And so even today, although they don't say it quite as much as they used to, they still regard themselves as the one true church and that other Christians... Yes, they do. I learned this from the Mormons themselves. They do consider themselves to be the one true church. When you look at their name... The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the most important word in that sentence is the word the. The. They consider themselves the only church. Christian churches uh, sort of have a little bit of the truth, but... 
but they have the ultimate truth. So, that's so found. why the shift lately mm-hmm. to more of a desire to be accepted as a denomination mm-hmm. to downplay the differences? Because I, I wonder too if because I mean one of the things that has grown them I and mean, Mormonism, according to the most recent um, mm-hmm. Arda report, I think it was Arda report, yeah, mm-hmm. the Association for right. Data Archives, Mormonism is, is rapidly growing throughout the United States. And it is one the world. of the only two religions in America that mm-hmm. is. Staying, uh, staying sustaining yeah. its growth and relative to the population yeah, yeah. growth. That's why and the so, other so, Jehovah's so, Witness. So with that growth, mm-hmm. why would they want to say, now you know we're kind of we're kind of like another denomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know why not say the rest are apostate mm-hmm. and we're not? Uh, or, or, or well, no, it used to be very blunt about right, that. Right. Uh, but it seems to be downplaying. I mean, in the would last you agree? twenty years or right. so, it's been true, and I, I think part of that is because of the uh, the growth that they've had, mm-hmm. not only here in the United States but around the world. And they want to present themselves with the best light. And so because of the history where people, and I think it still remains to some extent, people have a notion that Mormonism is strange, that, that you know, Mormons, of course, they, historically they were associated with polygamy and right. these other things. I think that the, the LDS church now wants to present themselves as, a, as sort of a, a, a regular people. In fact, even their TV ads today, I am a Mormon. You'll see that they are just yeah. regular people, guy just like everybody else. Guy doing this, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And again, in terms of their behavior, in terms of their social standing and everything, they are pretty much like most people, Mormon most folks. most evangelicals. Yeah. Um, but uh, still, officially, I think if you look at their official right. statements, they still have that belief that they are the one true church. Well, and, let's, and, and let's that's talk why about they that. want to convert people to their church. Sure, sure, sure. And, and we would, as evangelical Christians, we would think that the necessity of conversion is real, prevalent, and common. We want to see people converted. So I actually appreciate, I wish more Christians had the passion for sharing their faith that Mormons do. But, but there is a difference, yeah, ahead, and that's me. this. Tell me. Most evangelicals are concerned about winning a person to faith in Jesus Christ. Good point. And, and less about which denomination they right. join sure. or whether they get, you know, join our church or whatever. True. But in the LDS, it's not just a matter of accepting Jesus. It's a matter of accepting the church. The one true church. You have got to join right. the church in order to have what they would call the fullness of salvation. Sure. Sure. That is, to, to be exalt, someday to hopefully be exalted, to become like our to heavenly become, Father. To become like a, a God. Exactly. Now, mm-hmm. now, talk to us, though, because the one true church thing is one of the reasons that people have used that and maybe the strange beliefs to people. But again, mm-hmm. I, I'm concerned about us throwing around the cult word. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 when this came up a few months back, I kind of, you know, we released mm-hmm. some data. I, I was one who was on the record saying, that it's not helpful mm-hmm. to use the cult word. Sociologists don't use the cult word. But make the distinction between, between a theological and a mm-hmm. sociological cult and talk to us a little about the idea. I, uh-huh. I tweeted a few minutes right. ago before the show, and I said uh, we're going to talk about why it's uh, – at least I was going to talk about why it's not a cult. Well, Talk th- to us about it. There is a difference. You know, in most people's minds, when you think of a cult, you think of an organization or a group that is uh, – uh, is uh, very outside of the mainstream of life. Uh, they may have a, a very uh, extensive control system over their people. Uh, they may have not only... Which Mormonism does have, if you've talked to anyone who's come out of it. Just b- bizarre beliefs, but bizarre practices. Mm-hmm. They, Which Mormonism has in spades. It may be communal. Usually we think of groups like the, the Branch Davidians. Sure. Or uh, the, the commune or something. Yeah, or like the Jim that. Jones cult. Those kind yeah. of things that tend to be really out there yeah. in terms of their belief. Um, however, I, we also have to look not just at that, and this is what we as evangelical, this is kind of where we begin in our evaluation of religions. We start not just at that point, we also look at their doctrine. 
Yeah. We look at what they, right. their stated beliefs. What they believe. And, and we, be, we want to be careful not to exaggerate or right. overstate the truth. We want to look at their statements, their, their doctrinal statements, their historical That's statements, and then to analyze them in, in relationship to what I call historic Christianity, right. which is, which is a, basically a, a non-denominational concept because it's common to all Christian denominations historically. Right. So we're not talking about necessarily Lutheran's means of grace no. or Baptist's, you know, not at security. All. But what we're talking specifically about is that the historic Christian theology, not even evangelical theology, mm-hmm. not even a conversion mm-hmm. exactly. to evangelical theology, that mm-hmm. there are distinctions and differences. So, so, and again, but I think it's, for me, I want to make sure we, we don't leave this point, is that I think that one of the ways that maybe the pastors and church leaders who watch this can help yeah. is, to, is, to, is to drop the cult language because people mm-hmm. in our culture, they hear mind control branch Davidians mm-hmm. when you talk about cults. Mm-hmm. They don't hear the theological difference between the two. Well, which is no reason whatsoever to get rid of the word cult. From chapter one of Walter Martin's The Kingdom of the Cults, uh, I happened to own a, an older version of it long before Rav, Ravi Zacharias made any edits to it. <clears throat> By the term cult, I mean nothing derogatory to any group so classified. A cult, as I define it, is any religious group which differs significantly in some in in some one or more respects as to belief or practice from those religious groups which are regarded as normative expressions of religion in our total culture. That's a, that's a definition. So I may add to this that a cult might also be defined as a group of people gathered about a specific person or a person's misinterpretation of the Bible. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses are for the most part followers of the interpretations of Charles Taze Russell and J.F. Rutherford. The Christian scientist of today is a disciple of Mary Baker Eddy and her interpretations of Scripture. The Mormons, by their own admission, adhere to those interpretations found in the writings of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. It would be possible to go on citing many others such as the Unity School of Christianity, which follows the theology of Charles Myrtle Fillmore. From a theological viewpoint, the cults contain many major deviations from historic Christianity. Yet, paradoxically, they continue to insist that they are entitled to be classified as Christians. So I'm going to just say that Walter Martin knew way more about this topic than Ed Stetzer. And he didn't need to go out and do a sociological survey of the market to find out what people's opinions were regarding this. The language he used was the language he used for a very specific reason. The Mormons claim to be Christian and at the same time to be the only true church. They've hijacked all of our words and they worship a different God with them. According to the historic classic definition of cult, they are a cult, and we must maintain that language, even though Ed Stetzer thinks it's unhelpful. The problem is, I think Ed Stetzer, is, his, his explanation and desire here is extremely unhelpful and only blurs and muddies the water. We need to have sharper definition and definitions and stronger language to continue to make the distinction that those people who are in the Mormon religion, I should say religions because there's different varieties, are not rightly worshiping the one true God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. They are worshiping an idol of the making of Joseph Smith that, that, that Joseph Smith himself made. 
and they need to repent and believe in the one true God and the real Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And this idea that you can become a God is blasphemous and contrary to what God has revealed in his word. We must maintain and continue to work, use the word cult. And I don't care if Mitt Romney becomes president or not. Presidential politics has no say in what we are to say and do regarding theology, apologetics, and evangelism. All of that is dictated by God and our King, Jesus Christ, and the President of the United States, whether it's Barack Obama, Mick, Mitt Romney, or Mickey Mouse, has no bearing on what we need to be doing as the church. And I think, you know, despite Ed Stetzer's desire to be helpful, he's been extremely unhelpful in what he's doing here. This is not a matter of perception. This is a matter of them, by definition, worshiping a different God and smuggling all of our language to do it, and then turning around and saying, we're not Christian, they are. Unbelievable. I feel a little strongly about this because I've spent years doing counter cult apologetics and ministering to and witnessing to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and those who are caught up in these cults. And Ed Stetzer is doing those people a disservice, the people who are ministering to people who are in the cults and those who have left it. He's not speaking from knowledge. He's speaking from ignorance as far as I'm concerned. When was the last time you actually had a real conversation with a Mormon, Ed, or with somebody who's been brought out of Mormonism through the work of a, basically a grunt soldier in the body of Christ doing counter-cult apologetics? It sounds to me like he hasn't done any of that. Instead, is just relying on his surveys that he's been putting out there. Extremely unhelpful. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And 
we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Chris Rosebro here with another useful technology product recommendation. Do you use an iPad or another competing tablet device? Well, if so, then you know how aggravating it is to constantly have to keep wiping off the smudge marks and fingerprints. Well, I've got the perfect solution for you. It's the Bamboo Stylus. Now, I've tried about a half a dozen different types of styluses over the years, and the Bamboo Stylus is by far the best stylus I've used. It's perfectly weighted feels and works just like a high-end or high-priced pen. And I use my bamboo stylus every day with my iPad for writing notes, drawing, and other day-to-day tasks. If you're considering getting a stylus for your iPad or tablet, then you can't go wrong with the old bamboo. And the best part is they come in multiple colors. So to get yours, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and right there on our homepage, you'll see an ad banner that you can click on to purchase your bamboo. And a portion of your purchase will go to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That website again, fightingforthefaith.com. Look for the bamboo ad banner, click on it, and get your bamboo today. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Basic premise behind the bad sermons is you can't teach sound doctrine by twisting God's word. I know that sounds like, wow, I never thought of that before. Yeah, that's the basic premise. You can't teach sound doctrine by teaching false doctrine. You can't teach sound doctrine by twisting the word of God. You can't rightly handle it by twisting it. You, you get what I'm saying there. Yeah, you know, so. Let's cue up the sermon review music here. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Now, today's um, stand-up comedy routine comes to us via Milestone Church in Keller, Texas. And the stand-up comedy routine is done by Eric Lawson of Element Church, I think from the St. Louis area. Now, I say stand-up comedy routine because as you're going to hear... A rim shot is going to be needed at multiple points in this 
thing. I, I'm really thinking this guy was in the wrong place. I thought he was... I think he was thinking he was at the improv. Is there an improv in St. Louis or Keller, Texas? I, I don't know if there is or not, but I, I'm thinking he was thinking it's open mic night at the improv in Keller. Forgot that he was in a church. Anyway... We'll take a look at how he handles or mishandles God's word. You get the point. So without any further ado, here is, uh, uh, well, the pastor of Milestone Church in Keller, Texas, introducing Eric Lawson of Element Church. Here we go. Hey, Milestone family and all our guests, Pastor Jeff here. It's a special weekend at Milestone. It's the weekend we have our big Battle of the Sexes retreat for our youth department. And it's always amazing to see the life change that happens in young people's lives. And I'm so appreciative of our youth pastor and the leadership team and the impact they make. I have with us this weekend speaking a special guest, a, a real close friend of mine in Brandy's. He pastors Element Church. His name is Eric Lawson. And he and his wife, Christy, again, just a great couple doing a great job in St. Louis, Missouri. Element Church planted just a few years ago, and now 2,000 people attending. Uh, the reason I invited him is he has a unique gift. Not only is he now a senior pastor, but he himself was one of the chief communicators to young people in America just a few years ago. Was a youth pastor at a large church that had really national influence with youth pastors and youth leaders. He traveled the country, and so I promise you, parents of young people, Milestone Church family, and young people in general, you're going to be blessed by what you hear from Eric Lawson. I want us to give him a warm Milestone welcome as he comes to speak. Thank you. Wow, it's a great honor and a privilege to be with you this morning. I know any time that you hear of a guest speaker, especially somebody who has years of youth ministry experience, there's a little bit of apprehension and fear. Is this guy going to be long-winded? Youth pastors are notorious for being long-winded. Uh, one time I was speaking at a conference and a friend... In now that's the setup for the first joke for the stand-up comedy routine. Just saying. Introduced me as Eric the Pharaoh Preacher. I was like, man, what do what, you mean by that? I pulled the guy after service and I said, why'd you call me the Pharaoh Preacher? He said, Eric, you're a good preacher and all. You just don't know when to let God's people go. So we've really had a revival in our ministry since that time. I'm really short-winded. Here's how we measure success back at our church, Element Church. We measure our success each weekend by how many people get saved and how many Baptists we can beat to the restaurant after church. So we're going to get you out of here at a good time. And uh, I'm just really honored to be here with you. I love your pastor, Pastor Jeff and his wonderful wife, Brandy. Uh, you are so blessed to have such incredible pastors who truly love you. Um, I'm friends with Pastor Jeff. We're deer hunting buddies. And, um, you know, we're also part of the same church family. Uh, pastor Jeff's pastor, Pastor Steve Robinson, is also my pastor. And uh, so I get to see Pastor Jeff in many different types of environments and different uh, capacities. And I'm just telling you, he's a man of character, a man of integrity. He loves Jesus. He loves you guys. You can tell uh, what somebody loves by what they talk about. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I can tell you, Pastor Jeff loves four things, man. He loves Jesus. 
He loves his family. He loves deer hunting, and he loves Milestone Church, and he just loves you. So next time uh, he's back with you, you just need to let him know how much you love and appreciate him. How many appreciate your pastors? As Pastor Jeff said, I, I came out of youth ministry. I was actually in youth ministry 16 years prior to planting Element Church uh, six years ago. And uh, I was uh, part of actually getting to build the largest youth ministry in America. When I left to start our church, uh, we had 3,000 teenagers coming to our youth ministry every single Wednesday night. And uh, I'm telling you, I just love what we're doing in St. Louis and just the mercy and grace of God. By the last uh, two years, we've had the privilege of being in the top 100 fastest growing churches in America. Last year, we saw 1,400 decisions for Christ at Element Church. And uh, God gets the glory because honestly, I'm just not that good. People walk in, they look at me, they look at what God's doing, and they, and they just say it has to be Jesus because he ain't that good. And uh, that's good. I'm okay with that. Uh, I am an overachiever. I married a far better looking woman than I deserve. Uh, she is just beautiful. And uh, teenagers walk up to me all the time. They say, Eric, how did you get such a fine looking woman? I said, you know what? I was just faithful serving Jesus. I'm a tither and I serve. And guys, God will blind her eyes to get her to the altar. And that's all you need. You just need her to be blinded long enough till she says, I do. Amen. God did it for me. He can do it for you. You know, we are celebrating our 17th wedding anniversary next week. God's good. And I'm um, so excited about that. And uh, so we've celebrated 17 years of marriage, and 16 of those have just been amazing. Wonderful 16 years. That first year, though, was just really, really rough. I want to be honest. It was just tough. My wife, as godly and wonderful as she is, she came really, really feisty. And so that first year was pretty tough, but I put her in her place. And by the end of that first year, she came crawling back to me on her hands and knees and said, honey, get out from under that bed and come on out here and fight like a man. And uh, since then, we've just had an incredible 16 years of of marriage. Uh, I obeyed God. I was fruitful and multiplied. We have three kids. Uh, My wife got pregnant with twin girls on our honeymoon. Thank you. I'm a stud. And uh, have a little boy, 10 years old. Now, look at those girls, man. Aren't they beautiful? And uh, just if there's any teenagers here and you're wanting their phone number, I just want to tell you this. I got guns. Lots and lots of guns. I'm a pastor now, but I'm not afraid of prison ministry. If I need to have prison ministry, that's okay. Jesus can move in the prison system too. Just want to let you know that. Today, I believe I have a a word that I think is going to be a word of encouragement for everyone here. Uh, If you're a parent, I think you're going to be encouraged by this. If you aren't a parent, I think you're going to be encouraged by this. If you're a young person, I think God has something for you too. Pastor Jeff asked me just to share about this generation and the plans of God and how we can harness the potential of what God has given us. So I want to turn your attention to our text passage, Psalms 127, verses 3. And all the way through five. Behold, children are a punishment from the Lord. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I was reading from the sympathy translation. Let me reread that. Behold, children are a heritage. Now, the word heritage in the Hebrew means inheritance from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. Happy is the man who hath his quiver full of them. I think it's funny that women weren't included in that happy part. It's just the men. (laughs) Side note. 
Uh, his quiver's full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies at the gate. I think God is wanting to redefine something for us. I think he's wanting to redefine first for us the prize. You know, we think that as Christians, the greatest thing we can have is the blessings of God upon our life in the form of more possessions. I believe that God wants to bless us right here in the belt buckle of the Bible Belt, Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth. I believe that we serve the El Shaddai. I I believe. I believe. Mm -hmm. What does scripture teach? Tell me what it says. I, the God of more than enough, that wants us to have a biblical balanced view of prosperity. Yeah, you got to have a biblically balanced view of prosperity. Okay. But the greatest blessings in our life isn't more stuff, a bigger house, the, the next car, the new neighborhood. I think God's trying to tell us that the greatest blessing, the greatest possession isn't things but people. I think the greatest reward that God wants us to experience is the people that he entrusts into our life to influence as leaders, as moms, as dads, as leaders in our community, leaders in our neighborhood, leaders. The people who we influence as leaders? What are you talking about? How did you get that out of Psalm 127 verses 3, 4, or 5? In our place of work. What would happen if we just shift our... I hate that question. What would happen? What would happen? What would happen if we uh, all decided to use Kleenex instead of, you know, some other brand? What if we all decided to brush our teeth three times a day rather than two times? What would happen? Paradigm to see that the reward that God truly wants to give us is that we would become people of influence to unlock the potential of those that God has placed within our life. Really? Wow. You know, there's a lot of things we get to do when we get to heaven. A lot of the things we enjoy right now as Christians, we love to worship. You know, when we get to heaven, we're still going to worship. We love to talk about Jesus and learn about him. And when we get to heaven, we're still going to be able to do that. We love to fellowship. Man, we're still going to be able to fellowship in heaven. But there's one thing we will never get another chance to do when we get to heaven. And that is when a lost person to Jesus. We have this one moment, this brief moment of time to do the thing that God created us to do. And that is to be representatives of him, of his love and of his grace that we might win the lost. Well, that would require us, well, to preach the gospel, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, confront people with their sinful condition and the wrath of God, and then tell them of God's love for them in a crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins. I don't think the majority of people in seeker-driven churches know that. To Jesus. The Bible says that our children are arrows in the hands of a warrior. I think God's trying to redirect and redefine for us how we see our young people. What are you talking about? How do you get that from that verse? See, we see them as as weapons of destruction. But what we think is that they're in the hands of the enemy and they're just destroying our house and destroying our stuff. And But I think God wants to switch that view for us. What if we saw that this generation of teenagers, this group of junior hires... Those kids in preschool and nursery as the weapon that God has given us as the church and as leaders to put into. 
This doesn't even make any sense. What? Not biblically or hermeneutically. Good night. Our bow and to pull back and to release into their destiny to reap destruction on the kingdom of darkness. <laughs> what? <laughs> what would happen if we grabbed a hold? What would happen if you went back and had remedial hermeneutics and learned how to rightly handle God's word and actually preached it? Makes me wonder. I mean, what would happen if, you know? What would happen if all the seeker-driven guys actually opened up God's word and actually preached it right? I mean, of that vision and that revelation. You know, it's not it's not hard to see little kids as rewards from God because they're cute. Little babies are cute. Even when they make mistakes, their mistakes are cute. Why do I feel like that was just a setup for the next part of the comedy routine? I love the story of little Johnny. He was five years old, and he was in Sunday. Yeah, I knew it. Sunday school class, and the teacher asked, what is a lie? Little Johnny put his hand up. Ooh, I know. And he shouted out the answer. A lie is an abomination before God, but a very present help in times of trouble. Got his theology wrong there. Same Johnny that afternoon. He's at home playing in the living room with his two-year-old sister, Sally. And mom's in the kitchen cooking up a meal. And mom hears Johnny let out this blood-curling scream. And so she runs into the, the, the living room to see what's going on. And she sees little Sally standing over Johnny with her hands in his hair, just yanking away at Johnny's head of hair. And Johnny's crying. And mom comes over and untangles little Sally's hands. And Johnny's wiping away the tears. And he looks at his mom. Mom, I thought she loved me. Why is she hurting me like this? And mom and her nurturing, caring way just said, honey, she's only two. She doesn't understand that that hurts. She's just too young to comprehend that right now. And oh, okay, mom. So mom goes back into the kitchen. A few seconds later, she hears Sally screaming. Wow! Mom goes running into the living room and there's Johnny standing there with a sinister smile, holding handfuls of blonde hair. She knows now. Kids are cute. You can't help but think that little babies and little kids are blessings from God. But then something happens. These gifts from Jesus, they begin to morph into this strange stage called adolescence. And something manifests. It's a curse that was put there years ago by your mom. You remember that? When she was looking at you with tears streaming down her face, and she said, I work and I slave all day long for you. And this is the things I get. I hope you have kids just like you. And it's powerful, man, because you can't outrun it. It tracks you down. And you find yourself looking at teenagers just like you were. Now, on the bright side of teenagers, parents, I have found this out. If there is ever something you don't know, something you can't solve, a question too big for you, it's no problem. Find a teenager because they know everything until they do something wrong. Because when they do something wrong and you look at them and you say, son, what were you thinking? They all have the same universal answer. They all get the Krispy Kreme glazed look over their eyes. I don't know. I was born and raised in Northern California, and I was a good child, grew up in a Christian home. I just had a lot of energy, lots and lots of energy. And I had this strange fascination with things that blew up. And I was 13 years old, and I was in my backyard one day, and I was building an underground fort in case the Russians ever invaded. 
the mind of a junior high boy. And I dug this pit. It was eight feet deep, four feet wide. And I got this thought, what would happen if I put a can of gasoline into the pit and set it on fire? Do not try this at home today, people. I saw a couple teenage guys over here twitching. <laughs> no. Just say no. Just to let you know, uh, there. so far we've gotten three verses, or we've received three verses. And he didn't even correctly handle those. But we sure are learning a lot about his life in this stand-up comedy routine. It's a miracle I'm alive. So I grabbed a box of matches and some gasoline, put it into the pit, lit that match, threw it into the pit. Boom! Man, this huge blast. Mushroom cloud came out of the pit. Force of the blast just knocked me onto my rear end. My eyebrows burst into flames. My backyard's going up in flames. My fence is on fire. And I did the typical teenage guy thing. I said, cool. <laughs> now, my dad was out front mowing the lawn, oblivious to what his wonderful son was doing in the backyard. He's just out there, praise him. And my good neighbor saw my backyard in flames, so he called the fire department. Fire truck pulls up in front of my house. My dad's out there mowing the lawn. Fire truck pulls up. Firemen come running out, of the, you know, with their hoses and axes. My dad's obviously freaking out. So he goes running into the backyard to see what's going on. And he sees his wonderful son standing there, me, blazing inferno behind me, smoke billowing from my eyebrows, can of gasoline in one hand, box of matches in the other. And he says, son, what happened? I don't know. I don't remember what happened after that because I was unconscious. <laughs> but I do know that this right back here, this backside is not real. These are silicone implants. <laughs> Kids are great. You love them. But then as they grow up, if we aren't careful, we forget that these kids that God has entrusted to us are truly gifts. That if we could harness that energy and redirect it into the kingdom of God for Christ, what destruction could be wreaked on the kingdom of hell? The true. What again are you talking about? Truly the greatest force to invade the gates of hell, to plunder hell, to populate heaven, I believe, are teenagers. They're just crazy enough to do anything. It's they can't even mow the lawn without being, well, forced or bribed to do it. Threatened with, well, you know, loss of privileges or things like that. And, you're, and they're going to go depopulate hell. That's not what Psalm 27 says, by the way. Took a teenager named David to show up and look at Goliath that all the adults of Israel feared. And he said, what will be done for the man that removes this reproach? And they said, well, you're going to get some money. And see the king's daughter? She's a babe. Oh, dude, you're going to get her. Who is it? Some circumcised Philistine. Yeah, David actually said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Long before, long before he was told that he would get the king's daughter in marriage. What if we just redirected our view? Moms and dads, it's important that we understand that at times, even though parenting is difficult, that we can't measure our success as parents by the harvest we reap, but by the seeds that we sow. Because did you get that line from a Hallmark greeting card? What is this? 
those parents, we're often having to sow a lot more on the front end before we see the harvest on the back end. Never be discouraged that what you're doing now as biblical parenting isn't working because God's word will not come back void. And you're sowing. No, I agree. God's word will not return to him void. Why don't you preach it then? Actually open up a biblical text and preach it so it doesn't return to him void. It can't return to him if it was never sent out. In those seeds that one day are going to reap a harvest. But if you only measure your success in parenting by the harvest you're reaping today, you might get discouraged. Remember, success is obedience to sow the seeds. God will take care of bringing the fruit. Remember, you didn't even show that from a biblical text. How am I supposed to remember it? It's not even what the Bible says anywhere. I mean, I can't forget it if the Bible didn't teach it. That was a good place to amen. Do you all amen down here in Dallas? Is that still a biblical word? Do we use that? All right. Number two, we have to realize their potential. See, when a warrior would need arrows, he couldn't go down to Cabela's. Oh, man, don't, don't you appreciate Cabela's? Glory to God. That is like the, the, the Shekinah glory of Jesus manifested. Love it. Cabela's and Bass Pro and just... When I need testosterone energy, I have three girls in my house. I just walk into Cabela's and just recharge testosterone. But you couldn't go down to Cabela's to, to grab some arrows. A warrior would have to go out into the wilderness and look at the tree branches and see the potential in them to be harvested and fashioned and shaped to become an arrow. And I think God is telling us as leaders that we have to see the potential that is within our kids. The potential. I think God is telling us. The biblical text doesn't say that. So how do you think that God's telling us this? Are you using some kind of special tinfoil pyramid hat to get this information? Seriously. To, in those that God has placed in our world to lead and to influence for Christ. We have to have that ability. When Jewish boys were six years of age, they would enter into biblical studies under a Jewish rabbi. And between the ages of... What age do seeker-driven boys enter into biblical study? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair question. Because... Obviously, it doesn't happen in junior high, high school, or once they're uh, grown adults who still may be junior high in their mentality. When exactly do those kids enter biblical studies? Six and ten, they would memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They would have it completely memorized by ten. Then the rabbi would question them and interview them, and if he didn't feel that they were the best of the best, he would say to them, go home and learn the trade of your father. But to the best of the best, they would graduate into the next level of learning. And then from the ages of 10 to 13 or 14, they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and they would have it completely memorized. And then they would interview those, and to the best of the best, they would be allowed to approach a rabbi to say, Rabbi, I want to become your disciple. And the rabbi would interview them, and if the rabbi thought they had what it took, he would say, come follow me. But to the rest, to the B students and below, he would say, go home and learn the trade of your father. I want to read to you Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, and this is speaking of Jesus. Single verse out of context.
I mean, he just told a story about all these kids who've learned the entire Torah and the Tanakh. Have it memorized. I mean, how do the kids there say that they even know the Bible if they're not being taught it? Recruiting his disciples and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. And they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending nets. And he called them. And we know Christ's famous statement, come follow me. Why were James and John in the boat with their father? Because somewhere growing up, a religious leader looked at them and said, you don't have what it takes. You aren't good enough. You're the JV. You're the B team. Go home. Good night. And what I love about Jesus is he walked up to the people that the religious leader said, you aren't good enough. You don't have what it takes. And he walked up to them and said, come follow me because I see something in you that nobody else sees. What if we could see people through the eyes of Jesus and see what he has placed inside of them? Mm. What exactly would that be? I mean, who are we talking about here? Believers or unbelievers? Uh, Unbelievers, well, every human being is born, well, dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God and under God's wrath. So, So what's with this human potential stuff? I don't see the Bible teaching that anywhere, and that verse that you took out of context from Matthew doesn't teach it either. How would our world change? If we could see our kids, if you could see your colleagues, if you could see your spouse, your grandkids, through the eyes of Jesus, not through the eyes of the natural. Don't you think that since Jesus had to die for the sins of the world, right? That's what Scripture says that he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our... That's what he was doing on the cross, propitiating the wrath of God. That don't you think that he has... That something about our sin has got Jesus' attention, and that has something to do with how he sees us. Because he would not be dissuaded or turned away from or blocked from or, you know, I can't come up with any more metaphors. The idea, he was dead set. He set his face like flint to go to the cross. Don't you think that has something to do with how he sees us? (sighs) When my parents, uh, when I was in seventh grade, my parents went through a really difficult time in their marriage and, and they separated. And for me as a seventh grade boy, that was devastating. I was really close to my, my parents, especially my dad. Now we're getting, we've had four verses in the stand-up comedy routine, four, three of them strung together out of context, one out of context. And we've learned more about this guy's life, Eric Lawson's life, than we've learned about Jesus, period. Um, Yeah, could you imagine if I were to take his life story out of context the way he's done with Jesus' words and try to tell you something about Eric, but you know, just a snippet here, a, a blip there, a, a sentence here, a half sentence there. You'd know nothing about him, but he sure is making sure he's telling the stories about his life and giving us the full context so we get everything that we can understand him. But he's not doing the same for Jesus. And uh, my dad left, and and I grew up in a Christian home, but it was like my my dad just went crazy. She spiritually walked away from God, and it just rocked my whole world. 
And I, I didn't have a great church like this. We had a church, but we didn't have a church that had uh, small groups where you could get loved and nurtured and encouraged through something. We didn't have a youth group. Uh, our, it was a small church. Our youth group was me and my sister, literally. Look, there's no dating opportunities when it's just you and your sister unless you're from Arkansas. And I just ain't going there. And so my whole world caved in, and as a result, I went off the deep end too. I just followed my dad and, and what he did, and I turned my back on God. And I was looking for a family. I should have found it in church, but I went into the world to find it. And, and I wasn't smart enough to be a nerd, and, and I wasn't athletic enough to be a jock. And the only group that would take me, remember back in the 80s, you 80 people, the rockers. Parachute pants and bandanas and yeah, long live the 80s. And that was the only group that would take me because like if you had drugs, come on into the party. We'll take anybody. If you just bring the drugs, we love you. And that became my family, my substitute for what should have been a church family. And as a result, I made bad decision after bad decision. At 13, 14 years old, I was a walking drug store. Prescription, non-prescription, I was dealing it. I had it. I was a mess. My GPA, my Freshman year was 1.63 the first semester. It was 0.0 the second semester. Literally just didn't even show up to school. And I, I, I was in the principal's office every day. I was being kicked out from school to school to school. I would walk up to big old kids and just punch them in the face. And then they'd beat me up. I was a wreck. But my mom didn't give up on me. My mom saw what God had called me to be and what I could be through Jesus Christ. And I'd come home wasted and she'd look at me and she'd say, I'm praying for you and you're going to come to Christ and there's nowhere you can run that God can't find you. And I remember I'd be at a party and I'm trying to have fun and those words would just wreck my party. And she prayed and she didn't give up and she kept believing in me and kept loving on me for three years. One time she tried to bring her pastor over to, to share the word of God with me. I didn't want anything to do with it. I jumped up on the pastor's car, jumped up on the hood of his car and told him where to go. And it wasn't heaven. 27 years later, I'm standing here today doing what my mother saw me doing in Christ. She didn't give up. Two important lessons from that story. Number one, never give up. Number two, be careful what you say to the pastor. <laughs> because I have to be one now. I get to be one now. And I reap what I sow. So just, just be careful what you say, all right? You know, there's times that you're looking at your child or you're looking at someone that God has placed in your life to minister to, a neighbor, a colleague on work, or an employee, and, and, and you sense in your heart the vision of what God has for them to be and what they can be in Christ. And you think, God, how in the world will that ever happen? When the angel Gabriel appeared to the young virgin girl Mary and said, you're highly favored and you're going to conceive and give birth to the Savior of the world, her statement was, how shall this be? Know this, that God throughout scripture has never asked the question, how? We ask the question, how? God never asks how, he only asks who. Who can I send? Who will trust me? Who will believe? And then Mary responded, let it be unto me according to your word. When you're looking and you have a dream and you have that vision, never ask God how. Just simply say, God, I'm your who. I'm your huckleberry. Here I am. 
I'll believe your word. The third thing is this. The warrior has to begin to reshape that arrow with patience. They have to begin to prune and they have to begin to fashion it. And it takes time and it takes patience. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 says, Love suffers long. Love is willing to be patient in suffering as it's molding, as it's pruning, as it's training. You got to be patient. Aren't you glad that God's patient with us? Aren't you glad that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning with us? If God's mercies are new every morning with us, shouldn't they be new every morning with our kids? Shouldn't they be new every morning with the person that's sitting next to you today that took your chair? Because that's your all law, no gospel. Not, I mean, even, not even God's word is handled correctly. This is just literally this guy spinning out his own theology and making sure to skip along the surface of the Bible to at least give it some kind of a thin veneer of Bible so that it, he can create the impression that he's teaching the biblical text. He's not. This is just a what if human potential kind of thing. Your chair, you got saved in that chair. What if we? measured our Christianity, not by how much information we know, but by the depth of our love. Christ didn't come to inform our life. Christ came to transform our life. There we go. The wedge between doctrine and life. This is not a biblical category because scriptures, you know, the apostle Paul told Timothy to watch his doctrine and life carefully, both. You know, that's what makes dogs man's best friend, is their ability to love. That's why cats will never make it as man's best friend. They don't love you. They love themselves. If you could get into a cat and dog's mind, and you could get in there and hear their thoughts, this is what you would hear. A dog says, you love me, you feed me, you shelter me, you care for me. You must be God. The cat says, you love me, you feed me, you shelter me, you care for me. I must be God. <laughs> so for all you cat lovers out there that I offended, I, I just want you to know the depth of my sympathy for offending you. I even created an email address for you. Go ahead and contact me. It's at I don't care. It's at I don't care at getadog.com. So go ahead and email me, please. I'm so glad that my mother didn't give up on me. It took her three years of praying and standing and believing and trusting God and being patient as she reached out to me with caring, long-suffering love, but it paid off. You know what else is so cool about our story is I gave my life back to Christ my sophomore year and graduated on the honor roll, graduated with 4.0, and my life completely changed by following Christ. But my dad came back to Christ, and my mom and dad got back together, and they've been Married now for 43 years. Like I said, we know far more about Eric Lawson than we know about Jesus after this stand-up comedy routine. What Satan meant for harm, God turned around and used for good. Because that whole dark time in their life is now one of their greatest testimonies, their greatest stories. My mom and dad have been in full-time ministry together now for 20 years and they're on my staff even, and they do our marriage counseling. Satan wished he would have never done that. I asked my mom one time, I said, Mom, did you ever feel like divorcing dad? She said, divorce, no, murder, yes. 
I said, did, did you ever feel like giving up on, on me and quitting and throwing in the towel? She said, yes, every day. I said, how did you do it? Because I look back at the knucklehead I was. How did you continue to love me and believe in me and reach out to me? She said, honey, this is the verse that I stood on every day. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. She said, every day for me was simply waiting on God and knowing that he was the strength of my life to love and endure. I meet people all the time. They say, pastor, I I don't get strength waiting. It wears me out waiting. Well, it's because you're reading from the Burger King Bible, the translation of have it your way. The Burger King Bible says this, those that wait on the answer shall renew their strength. We don't wait on the answer. We wait on the Lord. And there's a complete difference between waiting. God, hurry up, hurry up, come on. Quit using Pony Express. I want FedEx now. (laughs) But when we take our focus and we shift it onto waiting on God for who he is and loving him and trusting him, that's where we get the daily strength to endure with love. The last point is this as we close. We must release them into their possibilities. Release them into the possibilities of their God-ordained future. (laughs) Do you have a single verse that says we need to release them into the possibilities of their whatever ordained? Yeah. Seriously. Just make up your own theology. Call it Christianity. That's what the Mormons did. That's what Eric Lawson is doing. See, a warrior is ineffective without the arrow. And the arrow by itself is ineffective without the warrior. They need both. They need each other. Because that warrior picks up that arrow out of the quiver and puts it onto the bow and pulls it back and aims it and releases it into its potential. There's a picture. (laughs) I just want to scream. For both of us in this room, the warriors and the arrows, the arrows, you need the authority that God has placed in your life. So which are you? Are you a... Are you the warrior or the arrow? They aren't your enemy. They're your blessing from God to help you get where he wants you to go. I want to read a Bible verse to you. Don't look for it. You tore it out of your Bible. It's not in there anymore. I understand. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents. In the Lord for this is right. Allah, everything out of context. By the way, the children, obey your parents in Ephesians is preceded by a clear proclamation of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, and set free from bondage to sin, death, and the devil, so that we can do good works. You're just, just makes me, this is moralism, and it's just bad, awful, poorly presented moralism with some kind of a sugar-coating pill on it, that looks like a stand-up comedy routine. But there's no gospel here at all. Right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with the promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. One time I asked my dad, I said, Dad, can you help me understand that verse? He said, well, it's really simple, son. If you don't honor me, I'll see to it that you don't live long on the earth. I said, yes, sir. Makes complete sense. But your parents aren't the enemy. And I, I, I was a youth pastor of thousands of kids. And I'd get these kids coming up to me all the time. Man, I can't stand it at home. I want you to know when I'm 18, I'm out of there. I'd say, that's crazy. 
Let me give you the best piece of advice you'll ever have. Stay home, eat free as long as you can. Yeah, but make sure that you're blogging in the basement when you do that. Milk it for all it's worth. Wait till your dad comes up to you and says, son, you know, we love you. We're glad that you're here, but we think it's time for you and the grandkids to move out. Okay. Thank you, dad. Yeah, praise God. That's great. See, because you're going to find out, teenagers, all that toilet paper you use, it costs money. When you're buying that stuff, you won't be putting it in your friend's trees. You're going to be following the youth group, getting it out of trees to take it home and use it. Teenagers, man, they got to have every utility on the ho- in the house on all at one time. They walk from, from school, man, the blender's on, the microwave's on, the TV's on, the sound system's on, every light is on. They can see your house from the moon, it's so on. But let me tell you, when you're in your little one-bedroom apartment paying those bills, you ain't going to turn anything on. You're going to walk around with the candle singing this little light of mine. Your mom and dad aren't the enemy. I know that sometimes they say crazy things that don't make sense, especially moms. I understand that Jesus, Jesus understands. He does. He feels your pain, people. Moms, we love you, but sometimes you don't make any sense. I remember my mom would look at me and she'd say, do you want me to beat your behind? Answer me. Do you want me to beat your behind? Yes, ma'am. I was just thinking if I broke the lamp, you'd beat my behind. And uh, I made the mistake of saying that one time. I have never seen a full-blown manifestation until that moment. I looked up to heaven. I said, Jesus, help me. He said, uh-uh, I'm staying out of this one, man. You are on your own. <laughs> Jesus feels it, man. You know, you love dads. Dads, you're awesome. But look, you ain't cool anymore, man. The worst thing to embarrass a teenager is when dad tries to be cool. When dad comes running down, you got your friends in the living room. Yo, fellas, what's up? What's up? Give me some. What's up? You're like, is is that your dad? No, I've never seen him before. I felt sorry for him, gave him a meal. We're dropping him off later, man. Teenagers, before you're too hard on your dad, I just want you to know there was a day he was cool. Years and years ago, your dad was cool. He hasn't been driving a minivan his all his life. There was a day he was cool. Oh, man, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. They had you. The moment they had you, cool went out the window. See, we as warriors are to stand at the gate of our house to fight for our home, to fight for our family, to fight for the city, to fight for this generation. And the weapon God has given us is our young people. Nope. The weapon he's given us is the sword of the spirit, otherwise known as the word of God. And that's where this whole thing just falls flat. This bizarre stand-up comedy routine masquerading as a sermon. The young people aren't the enemy. And mom and dad and the biblical authority is not the enemy. When we come together, as God intended us to be, it's a force to be reckoned with. It's a force that's unstoppable. Young people, there's times that 
authority asks us to do things or says, you know what, don't do that. And you feel like it's not fair and the rest of my friends get to do that. And there's times you feel like you're going backwards. But remember, the arrow goes back before it goes forward. And the far... <laughs> that is oh, just so lame. Someone's all, that's good. Just remember, the arrow goes back before it goes forward. Oh, wow, man. I got to remember that. And you know what? The karate chop goes backwards before it chops forward, man. You know what that means, don't you? Nothing. It means nothing. This isn't biblical. This isn't what scripture teaches. He's not actually preaching God's word. The farther you go back, the farther you go forward when you're released. Oh, man. Mom and dad, are you modeling submission to biblical authority that you want your kids to follow? I've met many parents over the years. My kids are rebellious. They won't. Submission to biblical authority. Well, then they'd have to know what the Bible teaches so that they know their parents are submitting to it. But since they're not being taught what it says, I mean, how on earth are they supposed to know whether or not mom or dad are submitting to biblical authority? I have no, no idea what the Bible says, but I'm going to submit to biblical authority. No clue what it says. My pastor never ever teaches more than three or four verses out of context, but I'm going to submit to it. Listen to me. And then I observe that parent, and what I find out is they're rebellious against their authority, and they don't listen to the authority that's above them. Your kids don't do what you ask. Your kids do what they see. So if you want biblical submission in your home, are you submitted to the biblical authority of a local church, of your pastor, of your boss? of those that God has placed above your life. Because if you will submit out of trust as under the Lord, then you are modeling the same for your kids and they'll follow you. Why on earth should I submit to the authority of a stand-up comic impersonating a pastor? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. No, you don't get to pray for us. Man, this was terrible. So there you go. Unleash your potential. Just remember, I mean, the best line of the whole thing. You just remember, an arrow goes backwards before it goes forward. The farther you pull it back, the farther forward it's going to go. So, yeah. Yeah, man. Dude. Go fight, win. That was really, really... You had him in stitches there, dude. That was just a, an abomination. How on earth... Can these people say that they're actually teaching the Christian faith to young people and the people in their care when they're not even teaching God's word? It's like the lights have gone out. Where is God's word? Where's the cross? Where's Christ? Where's the sound biblical theology that the church has confessed from its beginnings? It's not there. That wasn't a church service. That wasn't a sermon. That wasn't biblical teaching. I don't know what that was. But, I mean, seriously, I don't know why the people there feel like they have to pay a tithe to hear that. I mean, it, it cable is far cheaper. And the comedy channel is actually more funny. Oh, man. Anyway, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'd love to know what you thought. 
you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We're going to ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.